When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Mini Break, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, March 30th. We've had plenty of rain over the past 48 hours at the 2023 Miami Open. That rain gives us just the right amount of time to take stock of where things stand as we approach championship weekend at the 2023 Miami Open. It's crazy to say this out loud, but folks, the sunshine swing is nearing its conclusion and Given the fields we have left in both the men's and women's singles draws, it promises to be an exciting weekend of tennis for all of us fans to enjoy. What we plan on doing on today's show for all of you Crack Rackets listeners is, again, taking stock of where things stand. Who were the biggest risers, the biggest fallers throughout the course of this 2023 Miami Open? What are the storylines that we expect to dominate the final four? few days of play. We'll cover all of that and so much more. And joining me on today's show to get into all things happening at the 2023 Miami Open is a returning champion of returning champions here on our Crack Rackets podcast. I mean, you know best, essentially as a co-host at this point of this mini break podcast feed. Of course, if you have not been reading each and every piece he has written for Tennis.com throughout the course of this 2023 Miami Open, simply put, you're just not doing fanship right. A man who avoided both the rainstorms and a significant sunburn during his time in Miami. It is our dear friend joining us. Welcome back to the show, David Kane. David, how are you doing today? That was an intro worthy sunshine double, Alex. I really appreciate that. Uh, it's been a polite decline for me the last week and a half, but I'm back and I'm ready to accept your media request. And I'm looking forward to discussing the last couple of days down in sunny Miami. Well, I'm just happy that you were well aware and not to divulge some of the text we send to one another off of the air, but I was happy you understood that Jose Morgado was nothing more than a placeholder for you while you were away in Miami. I'm glad you saw that shot across the bow because that was a shot to you saying, DK, we need you back on the show. Right through the heart there, that one, (laughs) that one stung. (laughs) Well, it's always a pleasure to have you and... Again, we've got plenty to discuss here on today's show. A shout out, as always, to our dear friends at Tennis Point who support this show, allow us to have these conversations day in, day out, ensure you fans remain the most well-educated, best-informed fans in the business. Of course, they also make sure you're the best-dressed, most well-equipped players on the tennis court as well by providing the newest equipment at the lowest prices. Go to tennis-point.com today. You'll find it all. Use our promo code CR15 at checkout to let them know we sent you there. DK, you were on the grounds for what, 10 days? Something like that? Maybe seven in Miami? Yeah, it was a, 
It's hard to count because I got to the tournament <laughs> early for some tennis channel shoots. So it feels like in all, really only in the last couple of days that I actually have some full traditional days on site. So it just it felt like the tournament was starting to get going for me. I had to go. But after spending that many days in Miami, I certainly was ready to go home. And with the weather sort of turning since Monday night, uh, I can't say I missed too much in the last uh, 72 hours, uh, both fortunately and unfortunately. What do I have to do to get a taste of tennis invite? Because first of all, you're fit phenomenal. I saw the photo. You looked excellent, my friend. Secondly, it just looks like a fantastic time. It was a fairly intimate blue carpet. So I have to think there would have been room for you. Okay. Um, it was it was an interesting setup. I have to say there were a lot of cool personalities that uh, blew through that blue carpet. And uh, not to interrupt you, can you describe the event for our listeners who may not be aware of what these Taste of Tennis events are? So the city... I'd be remiss in not saying Taste of Tennis is a, I think it's a tri-annual event. I think they happen in Indian Wells, Miami, US Open, I think also at DC, which given city's uh, presence in that event, that would certainly make sense. Probably, I guess, a quad annual um, event in which it's very much as advertised. There is tastes and there is tennis. There is a lot of tennis players <laughs> who descend on this event. There's a lot of food to be sampled, little amuse-bouches, if you will. I think Caroline Garcia was certainly pleased with that arrangement. There was some live entertainment. There was a Bruno Mars tribute band. And he did look a lot like Bruno Mars, I have to say, with with, with the right uh, kind of goggles on. I think it would be hard to uh, to distinguish the two. There was some uh, cooking demonstration featuring Arantxa Sanchez Vicario. It was really just sort of a weird foodie Tennessee fan fictiony event, kind of all mushed sure. together, and got some some cool chats with a with a, a rising Christopher Eubanks, which I wouldn't have expected at the beginning of the tournament would have been one of the biggest stories uh, heading into the quarterfinals of that event. But yeah, just I've never gone to one of them before, and I have to say I'm excited to go to the next one. Yeah, I again, if you need a plus one, you know where to find me, my friend, always. Um, and hey. I'm even down to coordinate outfits. If you can find me whatever it is you're wearing, it would look better than what I'd choose to put on. And so I'm down. You name, Down to the majestic hat you have on today. If you want to rock them together at the next Taste of Tennis, you know I'm with you. But, you know, again, all of this is to say you were on the grounds. You got to feel, dare I say, a taste of every storyline that has unfolded throughout the course of this. I'm sorry. I, I, I gorged myself, in fact, yeah. one would argue. God, sometimes – you know, I was once chatting when I was talking with my dad because sometimes I just say I, I like to try out my stupidest material on him. I mean, first of all, I say sometimes I talk to my dad. I talk to my dad because I like to think most people talk to their parents, but as as, you know. as many do. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes he's, he's like, Alex, why do you laugh at your own jokes like half the time before you say them? And I was like, because if I don't think they're funny, you're not going to think they're funny for sure. And so that's where you got to start. And so let me just say, I was very proud of that taste joke right there. Leave all of this in. Oh, it's a brutal transcription process for me when I'm interviewing <laughs> a player and I think we're both laughing at the joke and then I transcribe <laughs> it and I only hear myself laughing and I'm going, Ooh, did that go over as well as I thought it was? Did they smile at me? I thought they thought it was oh. funny, but then all I hear is my, just me cackling in the audio and I'm like, Oh good. <laughs> so no, I'm glad you say that because inside baseball, one of my biggest gripes with zoom and I love zoom. It has made podcasting so much easier over the course of the past three years. But my biggest gripe is sometimes I will just nail a one liner and you won't hear the laughter on the other end of the audio. Yes. And I like, I'll, I'll be like, Westoff, how come they can't tell he's laughing? Like, I was like, that joke landed, but without him laughing, it's, 
it makes the joke vulnerable. It's it's one of my most frustrating things, and it's why I always appreciate when you laugh, you laugh directly into the mic, which is why you will always get the invite back, my friend, um, for what it's worth. But anyways, tangent aside, I promise we're focusing here. Look, we got DK back, folks. You knew the show was going to be great today. Um, you're on the ground. You get a taste of every storyline that's emerging. What was the predominant conversation? Is there one topic that you would turn to above all else? Because there's been a lot of gems and there's a lot of places we could start this conversation. You were on the ground, so I'm curious where you think we should start this conversation. Well, first of all, from a personal standpoint, I did get a shout out from Bianca Andreescu about the Optic Yellow Hat, which is a 2019 (laughs) exclusive. And she pointed that out. I said, yep, 2019, a very good year. And she said, don't I know it? And that was especially (laughs) foreshadowing for what was uh, about to come later in the week for Bianca, who otherwise had a pretty good tournament. But I think the biggest storyline, or at least the most intriguing storyline, is this rise in the WTA Big Three discourse, which I want to absolutely clarify is a notion that is coming as much, if not more, from the players. I personally have been very surprised by the number of players quick to name drop Iga Svantec, Arena Sabalenka, and Elena Rybakina as the de facto big three who are all competing for the biggest titles of women's tennis, which is certainly true if you roll through the uh, list of biggest titles since the start of the season, would be the case. Bobor Krachkova, and you might even uh, take umbrage with that. But when you ask the players, they are not being prompted in any way. They are just naming these three, and that's... Uh, been an interesting one because I think we're so starved for big three, a big three equivalent, and maybe a little early, but that's it's certainly a player driven narrative right now. Well, shout out to Austin, Texas, Dave. The reason DK brought me up there is I raised my hand. I want to give you credit. I'm pretty sure you started the big three, big four discourse on this show about a month ago. I've like, been whispering about it. Yeah, no, big six, in fact. It wasn't a whisper. We talked about it openly. That was one of our biggest storylines going into Indian Wells as we discussed the wave of contenders and what we were watching for. And longtime listeners, longtime listeners, daily listeners of this show will know A, I've been beating your drums each and every day, saying that's a conversation that was started here. B, I, much like you, do include Krejcikova in that conversation outside, you know, even if she doesn't have the definitive slam or 1000 level success right now, although she kind of does with Ostrava, what she did in the Middle East. So I don't know why you wouldn't put her on that pedestal, even though Sabalenka gave her the business in Miami. In what sense is it player driven, though? Because that's like that's a fascinating little wrinkle to me. Are they those are the ones that you think people are now chasing those players? Yeah, Serana Cristea pretty much unprompted was talking about the state of women's tennis and how there are these three players that that, that the women are all chasing. Rabakina brings up the fact that, you know, she feels that Iga and Arena and herself are all pushing one another to be better. Like this is very much not a narrative that is being really led because sometimes you you come into these press conferences and you ask a question looking for a certain answer but these players are explicitly taking you there without much without much encouragement or prompting and it makes me think that it's actually what made me think that arena had an edge against Serana Criste heading into the quarterfinal because if they're all starting to think that those three players are that much better than the field then that's going to make it a bit of a mental hurdle in the short term for lower ranked players, players who are not in that group to compete with them, although that ended up not being the case. I guess Serana Kirste is now edging into big five territory right now with that with that <laughs> result. But yeah, I was very surprised, I guess, for how many how long it has been since there has been more than one great player at any given time on the WTA tour. We are be we have very 
eager to embrace that. And I'll also add for Krejcikova, Krejcikova is the one with the 1,000 right now. There's an argument to be made that the three best players, that list does not include Iga right now, just based off of 2023 success. You have Arena winning the Australian, Verbakina mm. winning Indian Wells, and Krejcikova winning uh, Dubai, and Iga winning Doha. Well, in my I don't best think, Serena voice. But that's not, I don't think that's a fair assessment because semifinals of the Australian Open, right? Or not semifinals. What was it? Quarters when she lost to Rabakina? Oh, no. She lost in the fourth round. Oh, fourth round. Okay. There you go. Semifinal. Manic Monday. It was the semifinal loss, though, at Indian Wells. That's what I'm confused Correct. here. And yes. so, and it was also, what did she do in the Middle East? What round? That was a semifinal loss as well, right? In the Middle East? It was the final. She made the, she oh, won the Doha, streaked into the final of Dubai, lost the final. And then, you know, I, I think the way she's been losing some of these matches for me personally has been a bit alarming, although I think we're, we got a more clearer sense of the rib injury, how long it's been bothering her, the fact that she had a several hour um, exit from site before her quarterfinal press conference to get the rib scanned. It's It hasn't been something she's been great at expressing. I think if we had had more warning, maybe we would have been more perceptive of it. But I think, you know, it kind of came out of nowhere after that semifinal defeat to Rebakina. But even without that, I mean, the rib was fine in Australia. So I don't, as far as we know, so that's that's an interesting one. Well, I guess here's my broader point is she has been a significant factor, though, a significant character in all oh, the major yeah. events. And that's why I think she has to be included in that conversation and on the short list. And, you know, you're right. Sabalenka wins Australia. Rabakina is now still alive in the semifinals and has gotten better and better with every match in Miami. And, you know, again, Krejcikova has had that round of 16 hurdle here of having to face Sabalenka in both Sunshine Swing events. So I I, I have considered those matches de facto semifinals, regardless of the rounds they have taken place. Now, we'll get to the Serana Kirstea side of things in a second, but I'm just curious with your eyes, because you were on site, you got to see a lot of it. There are certainly moments watching from afar where you watch the power tennis of Elena Rabakina. How well – I mean, Trevisan was in the match for six games or seven games, and then she wasn't. And, you know, to see Rabakina just – even against Kalinskaya or in the second round, I'm blanking who she got uh, – who she knocked off. Uh, it was – Bedosa. Uh, Bedosa, yeah, <laughs> which, again, you saw that power win out. And even with Bedosa serving for the match, Rabakina, you know, gunning things a little bit more on that return of serve, playing big in the boldest moments – bold in the biggest moments, flipping the words there. I think I test-wise, Rabakina does look a class ahead. I think Sabalenka in that Krejcikova match certainly looked like a world number one. I'm going to give Iga the benefit of the doubt because she hasn't been healthy. But when she has been healthy, I mean, go watch that Claire Lou match and tell me that's not what a number one player in the world looks like from Indian Wells last week. Because how better to measure a world number one than how they compete against Claire well, Liu? No, but I'm, just, but I'm just saying, like, again, it was the destruction. It's like there were times when you're like, yep, that's Iga of old. Do you feel the same way in person? Like, did you feel there was that big of a delta watching those three compete? Because I'm sure, I guess you didn't get the chance to watch Iga, but watching Rabakina and Sabalenka this week, I mean, you were there for Chinwen Potapova. That match Uh. looked really good, uh, uh, you know, from afar. Is the actual level of play between those three that that big, uh, the gap between them and the rest of the field? Yeah, see, I don't know if I would even necessarily make a list of, definite players. I think I think the broader theme that we okay. can probably bring into the clay court season is 
the return of high octane power tennis. I mean, we didn't even talk about how Petra Kvitova is still in the tournament in Miami. Or but Alexandrova, who doesn't Alexandrova, exactly a huge example. Yeah, yeah. Jung, who's very powerful. Jung Chin-Win power hitter. You know, Potapova, probably a little bit less so, but certainly one who really guns it off the backhand side. Mm-hmm. You know, the flatter hitters this year, Ostap- what Ostapenko was able to do in Australia. I mean, we're... That is, to me, the bigger theme, and I think we are we do so at our deficit if we are starting to name specific women. Although I do think that Rabakina and Sabalenka, as, we, as we've been talking about basically since I've been doing this podcast, are the most naturally blessed with the weapons in that um, category. But I think the category itself is having a really great start to the season, which I feared we would never see again, to be honest, because I felt that the margins of Igish Fantek had definitively neutralized. Uh, big power, and we're starting to see it. Big power is consistent; it can hit through uh, margins. Well, I'm gonna disc. Well, let's do a Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club update because that is an interesting thread you bring up. And again, seeing it in person, Rabakina, Sabalenka—they have their slams now. They own property in the Country Club. There's no more doubt. But who's next in waiting? Who else can hit that transcendent level of power now? Anisimova is disqualified from this conversation because she's just not healthy right now. And I just like, I don't, I, we've had that Anisimova discussion. I think we know where she stands until we get a definitive update of seeing her competing day in, day out, week in, week out. I just, we'll put that aside for the moment. Who else are the heir apparents to that club who have the sort of power that can maybe sniff that group of, it doesn't really matter what the opponent's doing on my right day. I'm going to win no matter what. Watching Jung Chin Wen from afar I think she's the next one who gets entry into that group, right? And I know you tweeted that her forehand gets a little slap happy. I agree with you. But watching her movement in the outer thirds and watching how athletic that match was between her and Potapova. And Potapova is more refined right now. But Chin Wen was right there in the athleticism department and extending rallies and using her first serve as a weapon to separate at the start of that second set. Like, does she have that level of transcendent power? Is she the heir apparent? I promise I'll bring this back to Jung Chin Wen in a second, but I will. Good. I'm going to start with Potapova. See how I made this about Potapova. No, 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 we're going to get. To I have a full Potapova segment we're going to do, by the way. Okay. But I, all I was just going to intro yeah. is the fact that it, to illustrate the uh, the power that Jung Chin Wen brings to the game, just to see the contrast between what the way that Potapova was able to dictate against Goff and then was very much the retriever defender against Jung Chin Wen. Yes, I think between serve, forehand, backhand, she brings not quite, but very probably the closest to a rebocking a Sabalenka level of power. I think the problem will continue to be for Jung Chin Wen, the, uh, a little bit of a hitch on the serve and the fact that she doesn't always get under the ball on the board. And she, she slapped a lot of forehands into the net. And then I think that ultimately was what helped Potapova get back into that fourth rounds. But yeah, I think, she, again, she's just so impressive and she's got such a str- seemingly a very strong, knowledgeable team around her. She's got, you know, an English speaking agent. She's got a bilingual aide, you know, someone, you know, th- there's a lot happening in team Jung, Jung right now, which gives me hope that the ship is it being steered in the right direction. And I think to watch her in person is the hype is real completely. Mm-hmm. I think Naskova belongs on that list as well. She's still just a little sure. young. A little young, I'm, yeah. But yeah, yes. but I'd put her on it. Kostyuk and Andrescu are the interesting ones because they have weapons and they are as athletic, you know, and springy in combination of power and fluidity and quick first step that you're going to find. But it's not that 
transcend like they play around with their food too much if that makes sense like they like to go short angles they're fine grinding a little bit it's not as relentless power from the start as it is with the other players we've discussed like I do think Anisimova would be on that list for what the, for what it's worth sure I think Anisimova Andreescu probably hit they hit a heavier ball than Acostiuk, yeah. in my opinion. I always think Kostiuk is like a better bench hitch to me, just the way that they sure. produce the ground strokes, but with just a bit more power. Um, but yeah, I think when we're talking about intent, you know, for Jung, Rabakina, Sabalenka, it's constant power. I still, I think with a Andreescu even, there isn't always that same consistent intent because she could do so much more with the ball, which is, you know, to, an, to her advantage and perhaps also to her detriment because I think we could talk about Bianca later, but just I think that lack of one-track mindedness is what I think sometimes leads to these injuries. Just the lack of a consistent sure. footwork, a lack of consistent patterns, just sort of improvising means that you're not always steady on your feet and you're making, you know, sudden movements that can result in, you know, multiple ligament tears, unfortunately. No, it's fair. And, you know, again, I think the heir parents, Chin Wen is certainly in that you can come hang out on weekends at Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. Nascova, they're already letting her in through the junior program. Samsonova is the other one I would throw out there just because, like, I mean, yes, on, although we all have <laughs> eyes. A little worried that Benchich broke, uh, that Benchich's big contribution to the 2023 season has been to break Samsonova because the fact that <laughs> Well, she played a that, really good match, I thought, against Chin Wen. Yeah, but that's a, a player that she— third. That's a player that she owned, was up— th- yeah. Should have won in straight sets, was still up 3-0 in the third, lost six straight games after, you know, losing a tight Indian Wells match, losing the tight Abu Dhabi final. And it's a shame because she's super sweet and seemed to be like having a really nice start to the season. And I, I worry that we're going to not see much of her for the next couple of weeks, especially when she could do so well on the grass. Hopefully by then she figures everything out. Yeah. And just to put a bow again on this topic, this transcendent level of power tennis, obviously that relates to this emergence of a new big three, Rabakina Sabalenka, capable of playing that level. Elena Rabakina, since the start of Wimbledon, 39 and 13 overall. She's 20 and four now here in 2023. Obviously has ripped off what? Uh, six plus four is 10 straight victories, 12 if you want to include the two in Dubai, followed by the withdrawal there, um, which is always just a funny rule to me. I mean, is she your, the favorite in your mind? You think she's going to capture the sunshine swing, make it back-to-back years of players done it? Honestly, I didn't think it was possible at the start of the tournament when yeah. she was struggling against Kalinskaya, was really missing against Bedosa. It just felt yeah. like she was tired that over Bedosa it, out match, of it. You had to be sitting courtside, right? Uh, yeah, I, I was there at the end thinking it was going to be a four and four for, uh, for Bedosa. But unfortunately, you know, for Bedosa, Rybakina just has so many more weapons. And once she stopped missing, there really wasn't a ton that Bedosa could do. I think, you know, we're starting to see perhaps the, you know, if the game is moving towards this high octane power, that does potentially leave your Bedosa's, Sakari's, even your Jabor's and Kudermatova's a little bit in the dust. I mean, the fact that Jabor, Kudermatova, and Sakari kind of all lost to Miami within the same hour. Mm-hmm. felt poignant, especially given the rise of mm-hmm. your Rybakina's and, and your Sabalenka's. I mean, I think for for Rybakina, if she wins Indian Wells in Miami, she is very much closing in on even eclipsing um, Sabalenka in the power rankings right now. Because I think wow. heading into this tournament, I probably would have had Sabalenka ahead. Don't love that. You know, there's an argument to be made. Perhaps she got up for the Krejcikova match and had the letdown against uh, Kirsten. I definitely thought that she was going to win that one. Um, but um, 
if Rabakina really blitzes these two very different tournaments, very different fields, very different surfaces, that's a huge moment for her. And I, what I liked about Rabakina was the the sense of peace. I mean, she was very frustrated last summer that she felt like she wasn't getting the attention that was that was deserved to her, that she was a Grand Slam champion and wanted to be treated like as such. I think now she realizes that maybe she was jumping the gun a little bit on those expectations, has settled into where she is and where she fits in the conversation. And she's certainly getting a lot of attention now. She's getting, you know, main room press interviews, you know, and a lot of journalists asking her questions. And so I think everything's kind of coming together for her in a really nice way. And I think of all of, of the three, you know, you have uh, Svantec's, you know, acumen and spin. You have, you know, Sabalenka's raw power and just huge wingspan and impressive, uh, impressive, uh, ground game, you know, Rabakin is very much the simple, simple, seamless, happy medium. And if she's consistent and, you know, feeling good, she's going to be very tough to beat over the next couple of months. She just moves so well, DK. People don't talk enough about how well Rabakina moves at her side. And because that technique is so effortless, when she's at the ball, if she gets her hands on it, it's going service line or deeper. And again, the backhand is so fluid, so easy for her to change direction on that wing. When she gets the forehand's shoulder height, she can bunt down on it. And it's just like, it's going to work on clay. Like, why wouldn't it? You see the technique, how flawless it is. Again, that drive through that court, even if the, her movement's compromised a little bit, she's going to compromise her opponent's movements just as much on that surface. It is interesting, that dichotomy in the way Rabakna and Sabalenka both go about their power. And, you know, I think now is the appropriate time for us to have the Serana Kirstea discussion because, you know, credit to Serana Kirstea, right? Reaches the quarterfinals at Indian Wells, now semifinals here in Miami. You look for Kirstea with this run. She was number 74 in the rankings to start the event. She's up to number 41 in the live rankings, which, hey, 32 years old, you get to set your schedule however you'd like. You take a couple, you know, 100-plus grand paychecks home over the course of a month. It's a good month for Serana Kirstea. I would point out, though, here's the interesting stat for you, DK. Since the start of August 2020, this pandemic era, you know my favorite time frame to work with, Serana Kirstea against top 20 opponents, 14 and 13 overall. Now she's 5 and 1 over the past two events, but still, you take those away 9 and 12 over a two and a half year stretch. What was it? About, I mean, what is it? Why is this Kirstea resurgence happening, DK? You saw it. What what were you seeing? I mean, the easy answer is the coaching relationship with Thomas Johansson. I mean, that's the okay. quickest. That is the one thing you can point to that, you know, she's she, she, a tangible that, difference. Yeah, that's the arrangement that started at the end of last season, you know, has a bit of a slow start and is now playing really phenomenal tennis. I mean, for me, you know, it's hard for Kirstea not to be a sentimental favorite. I mean, like, you know, she's been she won her first title when I was still in high school. I mean, she's very much like for someone who doesn't look like she's aged a day, she's been around <laughs> on tour for a very long time and has had these sorts of, you know, pockets of good form, you know, doesn't really have a game that you would think would lend itself to this kind of combustibility. You know, she's got a solid serve, has a solid forehand, has had some injury issues over the years. I certainly remember in the mid 2010s was using an abbreviated serve motion to ease her shoulder. You know, the forehand has always been really phenomenal. But I think for Kirstea, the thing that has been so um, impressive is the amount of self-belief she has. I mean, she talked about it before she played Sapolenka. You know, for years, she's gone on court feeling like she was better than a lot of these players. And 
you know, I think that's the kind of mentality you have to have. You know, we talk about top players having a delusional level of self-confidence, and that's certainly, you know, I think without that, she probably would have packed it in a lot sooner. I think she's certainly in a situation where she doesn't have to be playing, you know, uh, personally, but I think professionally, she has a lot of things she felt she still had to say on the court, you know, to make a big coaching move at 32 years old, you know, felt like there's still things for her to do. And, um, she's doing it. I <laughs> mean, some really good players she's beaten at both of these tournaments, not tournaments, not just Garcia. She beat Bondrusova. She beat Mukova, who Kirste was quick to point out. No, they're not top 20 right now, but they're, you know, former slam finalists, semifinalists, you know, has a clean game that's pulling off very consistently right now. And it has that level of power that can hit through, you know, these more perhaps defensive players and, you know, Broke through her only Grand Slam quarterfinal 14 years ago was at the French. So this is this is a, a storyline that we could see continuing through the spring, which is always very exciting. Two things off of that. Her first title, Tash Kent, September, late September, early October 2008. What is what? David Kane doing at that time? God, studying for the SATs. <laughs> that's what I'm doing. I mean, that's how long ago it was. So you want to hear what's hilarious? That week, I was catching pneumonia in the week before my bar mitzvah. That's September 08. I turned 13, October 6th, 08. Bar Mitzvah is October 11th. I was right in the midst of catching pneumonia, which I had during my Bar Mitzvah. I had a massive coughing fit, and the rabbi was like, oh, he's nervous. And I was like, no, I'm sick. Like, can I get some water, please? And they hooked me up. And then I was like, you should probably burn that Torah because it has pneumonia now. Like, you can replace it, right? Because no one should ever touch that again. Um, And so, anyways, that's what I was doing when – Serana Kirstea won her first title, but here's a stupid take that I wanted to throw your way. Not just the stupidity of what I was doing during uh, late September 08, but when I watch Kirstea play, I just feel like she's everything Muguruza should be right now. Like, it's just like, that's what I saw. It's like, oh, this is what I expected how, like, 32-year-old Garbin Muguruza will look like, where she's still moving pretty well. To your point, the power's pretty effortless. It's not overwhelming, but... You know, again, she absorbed the first strike of Sabalenka well. She threw in those high, loopy balls that just pushed Sabalenka back. And, I mean, look, was did Sabalenka play her best tennis? No. Was Sabalenka, for some reason, just immensely frustrated throughout the course of the match? It was funny because she went on that run, right, to take a 4-3 lead or 3-2, whatever it was, in the second set. I, th- I think it was 3-2. Um and I think from two love down, she ripped off three straight games. And you're like, okay, she's found the rhythm, whatever it may be. In both sets, yeah. Yeah, and yet Kirstea could just do enough things to make her uncomfortable. And again, it's like when you watch Serana Kirstea, there's someone who you just feel like can do a little bit of everything, right? That's the Kirstea biggest strength, I suppose, is that there is no definitive weakness. Like – yeah, I guess it's not surprising to see her, that her game has aged so well over the years because there's not a lot to nitpick. She just happens to be moving particularly. Like, there's no difference to me. Serana Kirstea has done this month what Magdalenette did at the Australian Open. Two players who are pretty solid, very athletic, who just caught fire. Like, I, I don't know how else to say it. And this is perhaps, again, indicative of the parody we still see at the top of women's tennis now, that the gap between 40 and 10 isn't that big. Although I guess I'll say I'd never seen Magdalenette play that way before. It's true. <laughs> and, and yeah, go for fair. the shots she was going for. I mean, we've seen Kirstea do it on and off for the last almost two decades. I think the fact that it's happening now is surprising. But then, you know, things 
kind of fall into place. The fact that she got the opportunity to play Garcia, who I was, you know, I would have earmarked as, you know, if you're looking to kickstart your career and get a big win against a top five player, she would be the one I'd want to play because I think Garcia is just flagging a little bit. I think, you know, to the, the task that, that is in front of Garcia to back up the end of last year is, is big and she's not doing it with the coach that got her there. She split with him right before, you know, the WK finals. And yes, she was able to win the tournament in Fort Worth, but you know, the, it's a different arrangement on a week in week out basis. And we're not really seeing her do that right now at the big events, but that's all you need. You know, I, I remember even back um, Azarenka in 2020 just had like got the right draw and it just got her right on. And before you knew it, she was in the final of a grand slam for the first time in almost, you know, seven or eight years. And so I think it's a nice lesson or it's a nice reward to be when you are naturally talented as Christa has, has long proven herself to be that if you keep at it, you feel confident, you feel healthy, that that pays off. And I think um, she's certainly going to be one to watch. Yeah. I guess if I'm Muguruza, I'm just, I'm like, what are you doing Serana? Because that should be what I'm doing moving forward. What are you doing? Garbini Muguruza question. Yeah. No, no one wants to ask that because yeah. Or I guess you might want to ask, but you don't want to duplicate. Um, all right, last two storylines on the women's side, and then I do want to move over to the men's because I think the men's is a little bit more straightforward. There's one storyline, and it's Carlos Alcaraz, and we'll get to it. But let's talk Potapova, whom we have long referred to, I'll say, on the margins. We've like we've dipped our toes into the Potapova conversation, DK, in the past. We have, and you had the opportunity to speak with her. You wrote a fantastic piece about her for Tennis.com that I think everyone should go read right now. In fact, pause the podcast, go read it. Welcome back. I assume that's what you all just did. Um, Now you'll be prepared for this part of the conversation. Two three-set losses to Jessica Pagula uh, define her sunshine swing. Obviously, she has match points against Pagula here in Miami. Goes one of eight on first serves from 5-4, 40-15 up. And listeners can't Saw see that tweet DK's. that night. <laughs> yeah, DK shaking his head. That was, again, that's how I, that's how DK and I send messages to one another. I know what tweets he sends that are for me. I know uh, when there's just a little wink and nudge uh, headed my way. But, again, 22 years old, former world junior number one. The power is effortless. The the athleticism, the movement in the corners is just a joke. Um, I mean, again, the backhand technique, her ability to drive through the ball and her follow-throughs. Like, again, just how well she accentuates everything she does, even the energy, the drama. This is someone who just has that main character edge, who is in for the fight, is clearly determined to be the very best in the world, has sold herself in her mind that there's a standard of perfection she has to meet point in, point out, that the number one in the in the world demands of themselves. Obviously, you look for Potapova now over her last 52 weeks of play. She's been pretty darn good overall, 44 and 24, so right about at our two-thirds rules. But, of course, she won a title in Linz earlier this season. She made the final in Prague last year, title in Istanbul on the clay with this sunshine swing, Potapova up to a new career high, number 22 in the live rankings. Let's have the Potapova discussion, DK. You know I like to break things down into tiers. You know those tiers for me refer to, do I think you're going to win a Grand Slam this decade? Have you, Do you now have Potapova in a place in your mind where you would elevate her into tier one, where by January 1st, 2030, we will be referring to Anastasia Potapova as a slam champion? 
You would think I would have a more definitive answer, given the fact that I have covered Nastia Potapova as extensively as I have had you're the since scholar. her junior days. You're, you're I mean, our scholar of all things OVA. Like, I this mean, is it, straight up you. It means a lot that you liked my most recent missive on Potapova because I've <laughs> written about 12 of those okay. sorts of, like, intense, epic mm-hmm. Potapova stories. I mean, for everyone to be reacting to her court sense and power during um, the match against Pagula, I couldn't help but be like, I've been. Tr- what have I been trying to tell you all for the last decade? No one reads my work clearly because I've been like trying to bang this <laughs> over the head since uh, since she turned pro. But um, it's a tricky one because uh-huh. clearly, you know, last year she rededicated herself to tennis, was really feeling burnt out, was kind of enjoying more of the high life and sort of the extracurricular activities what that comes with being a professional tennis player and rededicated herself to her fitness and to her practices. I think added like two hours more, you know, per day of her practices. And you could see the physical difference. I mean, to, to look at pictures of her from last spring to now, she's quite, you know, in, in, in probably her best shape, maybe almost too good of shape, maybe could afford to put on a little bit of, a little bit more muscle. I mean, um, you know, so, there's that. There's the fact that she's so much more consistent now. She's really able to streak through multiple matches in a row, which something which is something she was not able to do consistently for any stretch of time. You know, has been able to you know win her first title, win her second on two different surfaces. You know, shakes off the fact that she lost the match in Indian Wells to Pagula. There was all that controversy with the, the Spartak shirt that she had on. Uh, was formally reprimanded by the WTA was grilled about it extensively after her win over Marta Kostyuk in a press conference that I unfortunately was not at because interesting twist this year at the Miami Open. There were some press conferences, there were some mix zones, and there were some unpublicized mix zones that certain journalists who made the request were being um, quietly notified about. So unfortunately, I didn't know that Potapova was speaking to the media after she beat Marta Kostyuk. I should have guessed, but um, unfortunately, I didn't know about it, which is a lesson to journalists on site nowadays. If you want to speak to a player, you must request them because there is no guarantee that they will just open up all these uh, press conferences to the public. So by the time I spoke to Potapova, she did not want to talk about it at all, which is her right. And fair enough, I certainly got the quotes from um, the British uh tablet the British press. I wish I had gotten to speak to her about it because I feel like maybe I would have gotten a bit more of a nuanced answer. It would have been a bit of a safer space <laughs> to speak to sure. speak about the incident. But um, I have to think that she had a bit of a chip on her shoulder coming into this tournament. And, and the fact that she was able to channel that positively into three pretty great mental wins. First over Kostyuk, for obvious reasons, a former friend, you know, someone that she was vacationing with before the 2021 season. Coco Goff, who, you know, she famously lost to at the US Open in 2019 to kick off Coco's run to the third round that really, you know, catapulted her into stardom right before the pandemic. And then a Jung Chin Wen, who had beaten her twice in the last several months, including last year at the US Open as well, you know, tight one to start the season you know, lost 16 of 17 points in the middle of that match and managed to come back and win in, in a tiebreak and was played better and was closer to beating Pagula this time than she was in Indian Wells, if that was even possible. She was up a break in the third against Pagula there, had two match points here, had the backhand set up on the second Mm -hmm. match point. You felt that she felt she'd had it. She let out a big yell when she hit it and unfortunately went just out um, and had plenty of opportunities in that match. Pagula did not play that well until about mid of that second to last game started to really gun it, you know, off the forehand side and played a perfect tiebreaker. And so, I mean, oh my God, was she gunning the return down the home yeah. stretch? I apologize, but carry No, on. but play, Pagula, I mean, it was an oh, interesting mo- moment for me for because I feel like Pagula is often an underrated. And I tweeted this, you know, watch that tiebreaker because there's a reason why Pagula is top five, top three in the world right now. Mm. What 
stands between Pagula and getting higher than that is, you know, will need to be solved by how she handled the rest of that match because there was no reason for her to be playing that well at the end if she couldn't have done that the whole match. She'd be, you know, a much more success, that much more of a successful player. But I think for me, the slam question with Potapova comes down to the things that are still problematic in the Potapova game persisted, you know, in the match against Pagula and they were all on display. You know, she's got the crazy high service toss that, you know, makes consistent first serves difficult, particularly in, in tense moments, as you noted, can be too streaky. I mean, that was one of the streakier, you know, top tier WTA matches that I think most people can remember, you know, winning, you know, five straight games in the first set, losing five, losing five or six straight games in the second, winning five of six games in the third. I mean, this is just a level of streakiness and it's fascinating to talk to junior players who turn pro, the number one thing they all say is that I can't turn off in these matches against WTA players. When I was playing juniors, I could, you know, go on a mental walkabout and it doesn't matter. But I think that's something that is still missing in the Potapova mindset to be on it in all of her matches at all times. Cause I think she ultimately loses focus. Cause how, why else are you losing 16 of 17 points? There's nothing hugely wrong with her game to contribute to that. So that's a problem. And then the nerves, I mean, she was, she served for that match twice and couldn't do it, you know, and it's, it's unfortunate because I think this was a huge potential breakthrough sliding doors moment for her that she's now going to have to regroup from and try to carry into the clay court season. But the good news is, is that she's pretty much got nothing to defend between now and the summer, you know, the, well, the other than final. that Istanbul title. Yeah, but she didn't play Madrid. She didn't play Rome. Yeah. She didn't play Roland Garros. So those are huge opportunities for her to pick up big points in a way that um, will wipe out that Istanbul result. Should she not defend? I mean, she might even she might not even go. I mean, yeah. she's ranked high enough now to go to Stuttgart and go to to some of these other tournaments. Was just so close to a top twenty debut. You know, I love her to bits. So for me, it was it was brutal for her for her to come so close. And you know, I think even Jesse Pagula felt bad for her. The net, you know, to, that genuine moment of you know, you're playing really well. You know, in a way that was sincere, and and you could tell she meant it. And certainly, I think Pagula probably felt that she got away with something when she won that match. But um, I'm glad people are finally seeing why I've been writing about her so much. And I hope that she's able to fix some of these little things because we're we're seeing with just what the fitness improvement was able to do to her game. And she can make just a few more tweaks. I would be more confident in saying that she's, you know, a potential slam champion in the next decade. Her ability and end of, end, end of rant. No, <laughs> uh, well done. Um, all of that, by the way, can be read in 13 different pieces spread out across history at tennis.com <laughs> from DK and on the WTA website dating back then as well. Um, yeah. A couple of things. A service toss Del bonus model. It's up there. That said, I don't hate her serve. Like uh, the break, uh, the whole percentage is atrocious. She's held serve sixty three point nine percent of the time this year. That's fourth worst amongst top fifty players. Now it's offset by the fact that she's fourth best in break percentage. She's breaking serve over forty five percent of the time right now, which again fourth best amongst top fifty players at twenty two years old. Not a bad place to be statistically. The model for her is Daria Kasatkina. And that's just so false because the firepower that Potapova presents point in, point out, her ability to finish points from the baseline to drive through both her forehand and backhand wings. Again, how well she spread the court and just changed directions against Pagula. Ugh. It was breathtaking tennis. She played extraordinarily well. It's funny you talk about the fitness improvements because I've always thought she's moved well. But now it's like, again, the amount of athleticism on court in Potapova golf 
every rally was extended every time you track down that extra ball. And that's the fun thing for Potapova. She can play defense. She's not afraid to go high and heavy if she needs to. But then if you get lulled into that pattern, she's going to snap a ball early on the rise. And again, the forehand backswing is big, but when she has time, boy, does she wallop through it. She can find the angles. She's not a good volleyer, but she's getting better at it. Like, she's not unwilling to have to go forward. Yeah, she got a little nervous in the biggest moments against Pagula, but that's going to happen to a young player. Like, I just think you can't deny the athleticism. There's a place for her in the top 50 for the rest of her career moving forward with just the totality of things she can do. Look, we've been talking about her since you've been coming on this pod, DK. Now this is a mainstream breakthrough, again, to have this run at the Sunshine Swing. You know, it's funny because I compared her, and this is how we'll transition here to our final women's topic. I compared her to Jessica Pagula on the mini break a couple of days ago. I was like, I think her highest aspiration is a slightly more dynamic Pagula. Like, and, you know, Pagula for 15 months now has been one of the five best players in the world. And I want you to address that in a second because the tennis she played down the final 10 minutes of that match was breathtaking. Like, that's best player in the world back against the wall, and I'm going down swinging. And that's what she did. Like, the one return she missed in that 5-1 run to open the breaker was an unbelievable like inside-in forehand that she missed, like, on the net tape. I mean, she was right there. But Potapova hung with her. And, like, Potapova could do all those different things. And, again, two players who can drive through the ball, who can be defensive, who can move forward. I think she's a springer. Like, I think her highest aspiration is Jessica Pagula, 1.25. Funny, because I was actually going to say that uh, the Potapova game feels like someone who watched Maria Sharapova's matches on TV, but it was a little blurry. That's, like the screen funny. wasn't quite. That's like, interesting. Especially now that she's in that Sharapova sh- kind of shape. I mean, the way that she, it's the big back swings, it's the, yeah. the backhand in particular, the very high toss on the serve. I mean, I think um, Sharapova's serve, certainly at its best, was a bit more taught in its delivery. I mean, I would love Gavin, I have tweeted it. I would love Gavin McMillan of uh, Arena Sabalenka fame to really take a, a second pass at that serve because to watch her from, I mean, the serve wasn't that wacky as a junior. It was much more contained. It got higher. The toss got higher in 2018. It's gotten even higher now. I I don't know if that was the problem, but I, I know that they thought that that was when she was working with Ian Hughes. I don't, I mean, Igor Andreev, the new coach hasn't really been, um, doesn't appear to have been addressing it. It looks basically the same as what it did uh, two years ago. But um, I mean, Pagula is an interesting because I feel like Pagula is so contained. There's something so within Pagula plays so much within herself that you know, Potapova plays within like three different personalities. <laughs> like she plays within like three of herself. Like it's Some just it's scholars so are arguing. It's fair. Yeah, I mean, there's something Dadaist about Potapova. I mean, this is why I've loved writing about her over the years because she's just so like fascinating to watch because it, there's so much going on within points, within games, within shots, between shots for Potapova. There's a lot going on, but um, yeah, I think for her, she's someone who can, you know, her, you know, one they say one's strength is their weakness. The fact that she can get on these streaks, you know, can win four, five, six matches perhaps in a row. I mean, that's certainly. That could pay off at a slam, you know, in a way that we ha- don't always see players, you know, catch fire, you know, and she did it again. Was it disappointing for her to not be as mentally tough as she needed to be against Bagula? Yes, but she did also beat three 
pretty mentally tough players in a row, certainly Coco Goff, who I fully expected to win that match. Um, and from 5-3 down in the second, after being up so big in the first, that was a pretty big mental victory for her. So hopefully she takes the positives away from the week, you know, and is able to attack the clay court season with the same gusto because she's someone who could play well on all surfaces. She's a former junior Wimbledon champion. She's someone who won her first title on clay and she did what she did on Miami and on a fast, hard court. So that's, that's the biggest positive she could take away from this first uh, quarter of the year. All right. I like it. Rapid fire then through these and because I, w- I do want to move on to the men's and I'm not going to keep you for too long. I promise here today where this show will be under 20 minutes remaining for you, DK. Um, that's that's my promise to you here. Jessica Pagula, one of the five best players in the world. Yeah. I mean, the way that she was able to finish that match against uh, Potapova makes me think that she's absolutely deserving of her spot in the rankings right now, maybe, you know, number three seems a little high given the fact that we're talking about big three and nowhere is, is Pagula in that conversation, but she is, you know, she is steady. She is mentally tough. She is not, you know, I don't think she's delusional about where she fits into this conversation. And that perhaps is sometimes to her detriment because you don't see her necessarily as one who can be that breakthrough. I think when we were having that conversation about, this new world order within the WTA field that she's like that consistent quarterfinalist, maybe semifinalist. And so that's going to be a big question for her over the next couple of months, whether she can transition from that lock to make the quarters to that lock to make the semis and the finals and really be competing for these big titles. She'll have a first, you know, crack at that this week, having made the semis now, but um, there's not a lot wrong with the Pagula yeah. game, which is what, which, which is what made the O and three run at the finals, that much more shocking for her. Granted, she was tired after Guadalajara, perhaps, but there's nothing like massively wrong with her game at any given time to make me think that, oh, you're going to lose three straight matches. And she's confident, she's fit, she's healthy, she's happy. I mean, this those are all great markers of, of success on the WTA tour. So I, I know some people maybe are not as high on her as perhaps they should be, but I think she's certainly very much one who is in the hunt to make another WTA finals, someone who could perhaps compete for another w, WTA 1000 level title. You know, can she win a slam? We'll have to see what she can do here and over the next couple of weeks, because I think, you know, a a win in Miami would do a lot more to convince me that she's slam winning material as opposed to what she's done thus far. 50-19 in her last 52 weeks, 10 quarterfinals. The worst level event for her was the San Diego draw, which was arguably the strongest draw of 2022. And she's now won five of her last six quarterfinals as well. My stock on Jessica Pagula has never been higher. Like, I think she's gotten more aggressive. I think she's driving through the ball a little bit easier through the baseline. I think her ability to change direction with her forehand now has equaled her backhand, and just she is attacking the lines whenever she gets the opportunity. Like She has opponents paralyzed when she has time on that forehand wing because you're just not quite sure where she's going to go. I think Pagula is playing the best tennis of her career, continues to get better. I think she is deserving of that. You know, again, where is she number three right now in the live rankings? I'm saying her ceiling may not be as high as Rabakina right now, but she has been, in my opinion, if you're actually looking over the last 52 weeks, not the last three months, the last 52 weeks, Iga's been the best player in the world. Pagula's been the second best player in the world. I'm not saying ceiling. I'm not saying three months. I'm saying past year fully. I mean, what what Pagula's done, again, the 10 quarterfinals that she's been able to reach, all at the most significant events. Like, Iga's been the best, then Pagula. Obviously, if you go 2023 specifically, you got to put Rabakina Sabalenka above Jess, but I'm just saying, I, I think it's a take worth throwing out there. But again, we're rapid-firing through here. 
Give me one Ekaterina Alexandrova take that you've been sitting on. Yes, that's right. We're getting into ECAP. First of all, if we're talking about 12 months, you would have to include the first three months of this year. So I would still probably put Sabalenka ahead of Pagula, which is how the rankings bear that out. And But she is certainly number three now with quite a bit of a bullet. She's a good 700 points behind current number four, Caroline Garcia, um, which is an interesting sentence to say, given how the last couple hmm. of weeks have shaken out for Caroline. Oh, gosh, what is my Ekaterina Alexandrova take other than the fact that I wish she was uh, Elizaveta Kulichkova, <laughs> which is now a that throwback be your from, take. from years past. Was just uh, She was very fun to watch, unfortunately. I don't think the body the body was built for tennis, unfortunately. But um, Alexandrova is just very much um, hmm, like perhaps a less oh, – God. I mean it's it feels very it's much – so the- streaky in my opinion. Like right now there are six players – who ranked top 20 in both hold and break percentage. Sviantek, Pagula, Jabur, Goff, Halep, obviously given what she did last year, and Alexandrova. That's the other one. By the way, Krejcikova, Sabalenka have worked themselves into the top 25 club. But, like, again, when Alexandrova gets hot, we've seen this before from her. We saw this last year in Seoul. We saw it last year in uh, a name I'm not going to pronounce, on the grass courts. We've seen it... In Madrid, like we've seen this from Al- when she gets hot, she strikes the ball well, she's moving well. She doesn't have transcendent power, but like she's top 25 good. She is. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, she's one of those players. It's like, I guess, a beta Kudamatova, narratively sure. speaking, just someone who That's has made it into the top 20, but. Could you name a signature win that Alexandrova has no, had? I mean, well the, the most the most memorable win that I can remember was when she beat Kim Kleisters at the 2020 sure. U.S. Open. And you thought, oh, clearly Kleisters is going to have the mental ascendancy here. But unfortunately, she just was not in the shape to to win a match against a uh, an elite athlete, unfortunately. But um, yeah, Alexandrova, she's fun to watch. Flat hitter, again, like a testament to the fact that this, this power tennis is really um, succeeding in these big matches over the last couple of months. But there is... You know, it's going to take a while, I think. I mean, if we think that Rabakina could be um, more charismatic, I think that uh, Alexandrova is even more reserved uh, and introverted. And I think that's probably why we haven't gotten a lot of ink on uh, Alexandrova. Sweet girl. I remember, I remember speaking to her several years ago and she's, you know, fun, excitable, all that, but just, you know, very, doesn't have the, you know, the magique of an Arena Sabalenka, which is a high bar, but that's, I think that's who we're comparing her against right now. Give me one Petra Kvitova take. Oh, I love Petra. Isn't she great? <laughs> Isn't she great? She slept through Ultra, you guys. I mean, she was just like, <laughs> she said, I got a hotel right by all the bumping and the uns uns And she just goes, I listen to the music and I love this song and I fall asleep. I felt as I was done. I was so tired. I mean, listen, she's just like, ah, talk about like Kristea being a sentimental favorite. I mean, Kavitova, if you, if you don't love her, then I don't know. She must have wronged one of your faves in the last decade and a half because I just think that she's like it's so hard to root against her. She's one of the, she's the nicest player on tour, the easiest to talk to, and it's so great to see that the game is clicking again because you know you feel like at any given time, you know what's happening. I mean, you know her her long time uh, PR manager Katie Spellman just took a job at Tennis Canada, which makes you wonder, you know, how much longer is is Petra going to be on tour if uh, if Katie's taking this long term job that feels fair to speculate katie if you're listening you know but um yeah i mean i'm i'm glad i'm always glad to see her compete well because i think that's just that's the pure tennis that's the that is the purest you know um example of power tennis and it's it's that remnant of that you know bygone era that we've been looking for and we're starting to get back but i think you know there's you can't beat the original 
You ready for this fun fact? Petra Kvitova, third oldest player in the top 50 right now. Azarenka, Jung Shui, the only two older than her. She ranks uh, seventh right now in hold percentage over the last 52 weeks, and it's just a reminder, like, she is capable of playing a transcendent level of power tennis where she just hits you off the court, and she's moving well right now. She's fit. She's playing loosely. She's playing confidently. This is who she's been for about six months now. Top 15 player who, again, does have that sort of power tennis to make any sort of matchup uncomfortable. Yeah, I think her versus Cat's going to be fun. Like, and I think the winner of that taking on Kirstea, I mean, you can argue to yourself you're the favorite, right? Going into that semifinal match, certainly. And so that's where things stand on the women's side. You want to give me a pick? Who's going to win this Miami Open? I mean, it should be Rabakina, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, feel like I think I'm really Rabakina robust. I was going to—I almost sent this tweet after Pagula beat Potapova, but this is the opportunity for Jessica Pagula. Like, if you're ever going to win uh, a 1,000 level or like slam event, get your feet in the doors. It has opened for you. The, you know, this Rabakina match is essentially a championship match, of course, because Pagula will be the favorite, or the winner of that will be the favorite, regardless of who they play in the final. You know, Rabakis played a ton of tennis over the past month. Pagula's now had a bunch of time with all the rain delays and everything. She should be fairly well-rested going into this. You know, again, had the full day off. I just think this is the one. I think this is the one where Pagula strikes magic. I think she knocks off Rabakina, but I'm going to look stupid for saying that because I agree with you. Like, Rabakina's the the easy pick. She's undefeated against Rabakina, although even Pagula kind of, you know, said, well, you know, Rabakina's playing a lot better now, in fairness. But I think I think to your point, to the extent that we're having this big three conversation, this would be a huge narrative bump for Jesse to be able to say, I won Miami and I beat, you know, the one of the three best players on tour right now, because I think that's also been a difficult way yeah. of selling the tour in the last few years, because not everything has meant much of anything mm-hmm. since the pandemic uh, came to an end, because really the only player who meant anything was Barty. And then it was Fiontech and they weren't losing a ton of matches. And when they weren't winning, they weren't playing. So it, did anything matter when they weren't competing or if they lost early, did, did the person who go on to win the title, did it matter? So now it's, you're able to then say when you're hyping up at Jesse Pakula in a couple of weeks in Madrid and Roland Garros, you're saying, well, look, she beat Robakin in a win Miami. So I think, it's a huge opportunity for her, you know, and at a tournament where she probably should already be out, <laughs> given how Potapova played for most of that match. Very well played. Well, that's where things stand in the women's single side. Let's head it over to the men things, uh, men's side of things now. And again, we're going to be pretty uh, a lot quicker in our analysis here. I've got three storylines for you to assess, DK, and then the fourth category is a wild card for you to take us anywhere you want to go to end the show. First topic, I think it's the big one. I know Alcaraz has to play Fritz here today. Hopefully, Rain in Miami doesn't watch that match away, and we're actually able to see it unfold. Alcaraz versus Sinner. It's the fun debate to have right now. I mean, Carlos is leaps and bounds, obviously. He's the story. We all have eyes. I joked around on Twitter. I don't know if he's playing the best tennis I've ever seen, but it's certainly right up there. But, man, when I watch Sinner beat Rublev, or I watch Sinner... I mean, any of the matches he's played this week. I mean, you saw on tennis, what, TV, they described it as God mode, and I don't think they were far off. Any movement for you in that Sinner Alcaraz discussion? Where are you in terms of just – is that the storyline? Is that the thing? To, I mean, the most anticipated match, obviously, we all need to see Alcaraz Djokovic. It has to happen. We all need to see it be played. Let's settle who's the best player in the world right now. 
But I will continue to beat the drum, DK. That Sinner is right up there. That he is in that conversation. That if he's not the third best player in the world right now, and I'm excluding Nadal, who's just injured. If he's not the third best player in the world right now, he's fourth on my list behind Medvedev. Trying to figure out where Tommy Paul fits in that conversation, but I'll, I'll go. I'll start with Alcaraz. I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, it's there was a tennis majors um, journalist in Alcaraz's press conference who quoted N- Novak saying that you know when he's healthy, he's the number one player in the world, and he go and you're you're watching Alcaraz process this information, and the journalist goes, but watching you today, I have to think that Djokovic may be wrong. Carlos <laughs> got, got a big laugh out of that one. I mean, there, Alcaraz is just you know he's superhuman and he's young, you know. Djokovic is superhuman and he's in his mid thirties so or late thirties at this point. I mean, so I think that's sort of the difference. Like, what do you value? I mean, I think, you know, I started the year valuing youth and that hadn't paid off for me for the first couple of months of the season, but I think um, it's starting to come around now. I mean, the way that Alcaraz plays is crazy. I mean, the points that he's able to, to win the athleticism he's able to display it's too good, you know? And I think that's something that, um, that Paul figured out uh, in his, in his last match against him. And so I think, um, it's hard to put Sinner in that conversation um, right now, especially because of how well Medvedev has been able to play. I think, you know, he's very much the, if there's a big three right now on the ATP, Medvedev has very firmly made himself that third guy behind Joke- behind Alcaraz and Djokovic. Um, so I'm, I'm in a way more excited to see Alcaraz play Djokovic. Uh, I am excited to see Alcaraz play Djokovic, but I'm more excited to see Alcaraz play Medvedev on a, faster hard court. You know, we saw what did or didn't happen in Indian Wells, where, you know, as we know, Medvedev's not a big fan of that court. What's I would love to see what he's able to do against him. How great was that quote, though, by the way, of, you know, this court and I have had a toxic relationship, so I have to thank the court. Like, Medvedev's funny. He is funny. I mean, he is reality TV gold. I mean, yeah, the fact that he's Yeah, he is quietly point, the funniest guy in tennis. Yeah, I mean, people talk about, yes, he's gotten... I would say of the times he's gotten angry, yeah. 80 to 90% of the time, it's funny angry. And maybe yeah. 10% it's scary angry. But I don't yeah. think he's one of those scary, angry guys on court. He's so smart. He, the, the way that he's able to conjugate his complaints yeah. is just... <laughs> That's so well said. I mean, it is real. I mean, it is. I, I said this to Phil Fama. It's, you know, it's Real Housewives of Potomac. It is Candace uh, Dillard Bassett. I mean, it's just the way that he is able to construct his anger and really channel it. I spoke, I said it to him um, before the tournament. I said, you know, hard specialist better be on a t-shirt between now and the end of the year. And he was like, you know, that's a great idea. I've had some really great lines over my, over my career. That's one of the funny ones. You know, sometimes it's, I don't love everything that I say on court, but that was, that was, that was a good one. I was like, yeah, I, I need a cut of that when Lacosta releases those $80 specialist t-shirts at the US Open. Um, but yeah, I, and he's so personable. I had a like really great one-on-one with him uh, as a result of one of those quieter uh, mixone uh, requests that I put in. And he's just in a great mood. He's so happy to be on a faster hard court. I think there's a great um, weight off his shoulders that he was able to, you know, what he was able to do on a court that he hates. And then now coming into, you know, uh, everything's faster than Indian Wells. I mean, there, there are clay court, uh, there are clay courts that are faster than what he was able to do uh, in Indian Wells. So I think he's in just great spirits. He seems, you know, healthy and fresh despite all the tennis that he's played. Certainly didn't play a lot of tennis between the summer and right before February. So he, I'm, uh, there's probably not a ton of wear and tear on his body. So uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing that matchup even more than, than uh, Alcaraz Center. Yeah. 
It's also on the short list for what it's worth, and I do think that's where all signs are headed. But where are you with Sinner? Are you take is he taking a step forward with you this I mean, year? You kind of you avoided the question because I'm I'm where I I am coward. <laughs> I am where I remain with Yannick Sinner. I mean, the okay. fact that he beat Rublev, come on, <laughs> like that's not that's not that a bar. I'm talking about to like be the de- general consensus, but he didn't just beat Rublev; he crushed him. Like, did you watch the tennis? It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. He's got to beat it. He's got to beat someone who matters. I'm sorry. And I love Andre. He's so sweet. He's another really great guy to talk to. But he's got to beat a guy that matters at a big tournament. That it has. He has to so do it. Who and matters? He hasn't done it Can yet. I ask you that? Who's the list of this guy matters? Is it Medvedev, Djokovic, Nadal, like Alcaraz? That's who matters? Yeah. Basically. Uh, certainly for Sinner because I don't think he's really beaten any of those guys at a, tor- at a big tournament. Um, I mean, he got Alcaraz – at Wimbledon last year, right? The the match they played there. And here's what yeah, I keep saying for well. Sinner. He was, he was up two sets to love on Djokovic at Wimbledon, had match point on Alcaraz at the U.S. Open, loses a really fun five-set match against Tsitsipas. Here's Did my he argument. Those? Okay, <laughs> but he's done everything but. It's like at a certain point, it's, it's the Andy Murray conundrum where like you've checked off everything but winning that massive title. Yeah, it the is the Andy time. Murray conundrum. And yet we don't even talk about Andy. It's a big three. Remember okay, those couple years we're talking about the big four? He's 21 years old. Like that's my counter. It's like Novak I'm saying Djokovic it'll won- never happen. I'm saying that it's it, it hasn't happened yet. And I can't predict that it's going to happen until it happens. I think that's, well, that's, see, that's, that's where I disagree. I think we can predict it's going to happen, even though it Listen, hasn't happened. When it, yet, if and when it does but. Yeah, if and when it does happen, you you will just have a solo podcast and you'll be able to talk about how, how right you were and how you saw this coming. But I Oh, so it'll be had, a, a random Tuesday? It'll just be, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'll, just, I'll have my mic turned off. I'll listen. I'll nod. <laughs> I'll point. I'll, I'll do the point where, yes, that's that's what I want to say. But I Raise think, your hand. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it hasn't happened yet. And he has, it's not for lack of chances. I mean, I you know, I'm. Listen, I'm quite critical of Potapova's long-term success, and I adore her. But I, I just, I don't. I got to see it from Sinner. He's had a lot of bites at this apple, and he's got to do it. If he, listen, if he beats Alcaraz t- this week, massive. But yes, he has to beat one of Alcaraz, Medvedev, Djokovic, maybe Nadal. Given how healthy, you know, it, yeah. it, it depends on who, which kind of Nadal he beats. If Nadal is super healthy, then yes. If he's like, you know, what he was earlier this year when Demon Hour beat him, then a little different. You know, the fact that he beat Alcaraz on grass when Alcaraz was just coming back from the shoulder injury, you know, had that big honking tape, as I recall, and it's still a surface that Alcaraz isn't that comfortable on, you know, bare minimum for me. You know, he's got to, you know, listen, he could have could have shut me up a year ago by just winning one of the subsequent three sets at Wimbledon against Djokovic. I mean, that was, for me, the fact that you're two sets up and they were not even competitive third, fourth, and fifth sets. They were just perfunctory. It was as if mm. the match did not mean anything for the first hour and a half that Sinner was winning because it just, it ended so abruptly. There was not, not even a tiebreaker in one of the seven. I'm like, come on, man. Like you gotta, there was no turning point. It was just, he started, he played well until he didn't. And then Djokovic just took over. So um, that's a problem, you know, because we're seeing the kind of, you know, he's in an era now where, you know, with a lot of superhuman freaks. I mean, what Alcaraz is able to do, what Medvedev is able to do with his body and on the on these courts, you know, this is, it's a high bar, you know, and, and Sinner's certainly talented, but he's he's got to do it. He has to do it. I was looking it up. Alcaraz's season started in February. I don't remember if he's 17 or 18 and one, but it's like he ripped off 20 matches in like five weeks of play and he won all of them. And you're just like, yeah, I get it. But 
you're wrong, but I, I understand. Uh, you make a good argument. You're just wrong, which is okay. That happens. Well, I'm not, like I said, I'm not I'm saying he'll never do it. I'm just saying he has. He, he, we can both agree he hasn't done it yet. That's all yeah, I'm saying. It's fair. All right, let's move on to the next storyline. Chris Eubanks, what was your reaction to his week getting to the quarterfinals, cracking the top 100? Had to be fun to watch it all unfold. Listen, I'm glad that I took the video of his press conference because otherwise someone else would have and they would have caught me crying to to watch his, you know, the emotion coming out of him as he was describing, you know, the, the, the struggle, the adversity that he faced to finally get into the top hundred. He didn't even realize, and I don't think anyone realized at the time that it wasn't guaranteed that he was going to break the top hundred, but he certainly thought he had in the moment. And thankfully he won his next match to guarantee it because that would have been Uh Bianca Andreescu levels of tragic who she was famously told at the 2019 US Open that she'd broken the top 10 before she had actually done it or before she had definitively done it. And thankfully she went on to win the tournament didn't end up being an issue, but it's always the perils as much as I love the live rankings to bring (laughs) the live rankings to a press conference is always Always a little dangerous because he could end up being wrong. And there were some challenger guys who could have potentially leapfrogged him at 98 if he had you know, lost his next match, but he didn't. He's playing great. I think he ended up losing to, to Medvedev just a couple of minutes ago. But I mean, you know, this is it's a big moment for him. And it's a moment that's going to, you know, now he's top 100. He's top 90, top 85. You know, that's going to get him into some slam main draws now. And he'll be able to potentially, you know, buffer that ranking even more, get himself perhaps in the top 50, top 60. And then that's, you know, main draws at big tournaments, you know, that's, it's, it's a game changer for him and it, and it could not have happened to a nicer guy. Mm-hmm. Very well said. Karen Hatchinoff into the quarterfinals. As of this recording, he's up a set right now on Sarundalo. So set away from the semis, made the semis of the U S open semis of the Australian open, perhaps a semifinal now here in Miami as well. Give me a definitive Hatchinov take because he's another guy. Hatchinov, Shapo, Davidovich, Fokina, Demon Hour. Those were my list of guys where it's like make or break year, where I'm done even considering you after 2023, depending on how things go. Hatchinov, with the run he's had the last six months, he's right around that two thirds rule as well over his last 52 weeks, 37 and 22 now overall. Like very quietly, Double-digit quarterfinals over his past 20 events. Like, very clearly has a top 20 resume. Now, he's not elite in any one statistical category, but he's pretty good in every statistical category. I don't know. Like, there are times when I – like, if you were to make a tennis player in a laboratory, 6'6", fluid, weapons, but no definitive weakness, it would kind of look like Karen Hatchinov, wouldn't it? I'm so glad you brought up Hatchinoff right after Eubanks, because while Eubanks was fun, you know, open, honest, easy to talk to, there's something very unpleasant about Karen Hatchinoff. And I feel like people don't pick up on it because we don't talk about it enough. We don't talk enough. We don't talk about it at all because, quite frankly, he's attractive. And I think people, you know, give a lot of credit to attractive people. And he's and he smiles a lot of times when he's saying things. But the things that he's saying are actually not that um palatable you know there's a, always a bit of an edge a bit of passive aggressive a passive aggression to hatch and maybe that's some resentment for feeling like he's been surpassed by his countrymen by Medvedev's, by rublev but you know to your point 
I'm just as curious about what has led to this, you know, uptick in consistency, but could I get an answer? No. I said, are you approaching these big tournaments better or differently than you used to? And he said, no, I approach every tournament the same. It doesn't matter if it's a 500 or a 250. And I said, okay, but relative to how you competed at big tournaments in the past, you feel like you're approaching them differently. And he was like, of course not. I made the Roland Garros quarterfinals. I won the Paris Masters. And I was like, yeah, back in 2018, honey, like that was a long time ago. (laughs) What are you talking about? I mean, like this is this is a six month stretch of really phenomenal tennis and you have no explanation for me. And you're, you're, you're citing matches from like a million years ago as to why, yes, of course we knew you were capable of this tennis. That's not what I was saying. I'm saying you didn't know how to string these matches together and you were getting exposed and losing early in a lot of big tournaments. You were like that, that cannon fodder of a top 20 seed for a very long time. And now he's not now all of a sudden he's super reliable, you know, wacky forehand technique be damned. He's winning these matches and, you know, on slow hard courts on fast hard courts, he had a little bit of an injury or illness in between Australia and Indian Wells, as he was explaining, but I was just so annoyed at that point that I don't really, I didn't really process what his excuse was. Um, But he, yeah, he's playing great. Yeah, I absolutely. If you were to construct someone in a lab, you know, maybe smooth out the forehand technique a little bit. He's very much the guy. It was always very confusing to me that he was not more successful. I mean, certainly compared to someone who plays the game as wackily, you know, as a Daniel Medvedev, you would think, you know, just physically and technically, you know, uh, uh, Hatchnov is a stronger player, but it's a, it's it remains a mystery as to why he's, why he's playing so much better because he hasn't made any big changes to his team. You know, it's just sort of, you know, I guess he just runs hot, you know, is, is probably the best way to explain it. But I, I, I don't know what explains the uh, the approach to to the media and to, and to those asking questions, because I don't think anyone's out to get him. And I think he there was a sense there's like a there's a combativeness that surprised me because I think we're all eager to write that story. And, and, and we, we weren't really able to get it. It's really well said. Like, there has been no definitive what's happened to Hatchinoff piece. And look, he's a silver medalist, and he has had some good results. And he, very quietly, there was like one that he missed, so it didn't get the Elisa Mertens press. But he's made the third rounder further at like 19 of the past 20 slams. He is always holding seed, always in the mix to be right around that second week at the slams. And now, you know, again, back-to-back semifinals here at these past two but I think but the difference right. between him and Mertens is that Mertens was often losing to better players, and I don't yeah. think Hatchinov was losing to better well, players it, in the third round. Well said. That that would be the argument. And it's just like, again, he would lose to like – you know, again, he would be the guy who loses to a Demon Hour or loses to a Carreño Busta or yeah, loses It was like to a Pavlyuchenkova, in my opinion, yeah. Sure. Yeah, and, uh, you know, again, it's just like – on the right days, I do think there's going to be five minutes in every Hatchinov match where you're like, why isn't this guy top 10 in the world? Like with how well he moves, how strong he is, how big that serve can be when he has time on the forehand to turn into it, how much momentum he gets behind that ball. But then there will be a 90-second brain fart where he misses seven balls in a row and it's quickly down a, a break or gave a break back or is down a break, whatever it may be. I don't know. I always point to Indian Wells 2019 where he's up a set and a break on Rafa who started to cramp and then Rafa comes back and wins that match in three sets. And I always like can point directly since then. Like, again, he, he hasn't won a title since Paris 2018. That just shouldn't be the case for a Karen Hatchinoff who plays plenty of 250s in 500 events. And according to his interview with David Kane, approaches them all approaches similarly. Them quite intensely. And yeah. Yet. And so it's like it, it just I don't know. I, like you're right, the forehand's big. That's obviously the technical deficiency. Twenty six years old, 
Like I just don't get it, DK. There, there's a, there's, there's a full podcast to be had. We should have included him in the C list conversation because he like it to me. It epitomizes like I just don't know what to do with Hatchinov. Like, is he his generation's PCB? Kind of. So he definitely puts the C in C list. <laughs> just shocking to me because just as someone who was like down to even just get like a funny quote from him for baseline like i was just blown away by just how uncooperative he was in that press conference because again like you're able to win five matches in a row at a grand slam twice and now you're doing really well again at a at a a master's tournament something has changed and yet we don't know what it is can we agree though very handsome Again, but which is why no one, you know, no one's going to yeah. conversely, I think if he was less good looking, I think that story would have already been written. Like, why is this guy so angry and why is he so unpleasant? But, you know, <laughs> it's sort of like we hit true neutral with, with Hatchinov because he's so pleasant to look at. And he he does again, like when he says things, it's sort of, you know, he's smiling while he's saying it. So you think, OK, this is, you know, whatever. But then when to like yeah, write yeah, it okay, down or to listen cute. to it, I'm like, oh, God, just uh, disappointing. All yeah, like, see, that's why I think I get away with things with you because you look at me and you're like, yeah, it's fine. He's cute. So yeah, I get away with it. Um, this is in Phil Fama. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave that in, but I just want you to know, f*** you. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, all it's right. not even Gil Gross. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> who, who didn't invite me to be on his Miami vlog? Very, very disappointing. Very sad. You would have invited me to be on, on your Miami vlog. You would have let me sit next to you in the Miami press room. You would have you had a seat. You had a seat I, in the Miami press room. I should have sat in that seat all week. First of all, that's I know. I wanted to be – that's a whole discussion for another time. Um, yeah, look, there's a lot I want to follow up on there. Um, that was good. That was funny. You would have been co-hosting the blog with me, my friend. You would have been in a <laughs> me, yeah, me and Daniela Hantakova. <laughs> no, are you kidding? First of all, it would have just been – because for, if I was there vlogging, Westoff would have been with us, and I would have just taken the camera and would have filmed a burgeoning love story. And again, oh there's your God. new Netflix special. <laughs> but all right, with that in mind, my last question to you: Any other men's storylines we didn't hit here that like you can't leave a Miami conversation without talking about? Um, I mean, I'll say good for Taylor Fritz for seemingly sure. like riding the ship here and you know kind of reassess reasserting himself as. One of the top, if not the top Americans, um, you know, if he comes out of this with a really great result, that'll kind of, you know, shift the conversation. But otherwise, I do feel like Tommy Paul is continuing to just, you know, build up the resume in a way that's impressive. You know, ran into, unfortunately, ran into Carlos Alcaraz. I mean, I think the the men's draw is a bit of a problem right now because of the um, the way it's all stacked up. I feel like everyone kind of got, everyone who I wanted to see in the final all got glumped seemingly into the same, like, quarter. And I will also add that I don't know if you were keeping up with Stefano Sitsipas and his um, explanation of, we all got a really good uh, lesson on how the ATP ranking penalties work. I don't know if you caught up on that or if you, that was something you immediately picked up on, but it was well, a wacky I, one. I, I read into it and it just like, the, there wasn't clarity around the rule. That was the whole thing because I read <sighs> Sitsipas's argument and then I read Oleg at Anna K underscore forever, one of my favorite Twitter accounts, who tweeted out something disagreeing with Tsitsipas. And I don't want to be rude, but I'm going to lean Oleg over Tsitsipas every time because Anna K has never been, never led me astray. Um, and yet then, like I saw Gil was kind of on Team Tsitsipas. And I was like, well, I don't think Gil would be wrong here. There's a lot of controversy surrounding it, which just gets to like, it's a stupid bylaw. It was very annoying to get clarity yes. on the rule. And I asked multiple people and I still feel like 
it took me until hours after I published my story that I finally got a grasp on it. Because when I asked the ATP, first of all, I, I reached out to someone at the ATP who's in London, and that took a while for him to get back to me. The ATP comms representative sent me, you know, a copy of the rule and didn't really interpret it, sort of just sent it back to me. What was at issue was if he didn't play Indian Wells, he, yes, he would have gotten a zero pointer. And then he would have been suspended, not gotten a ranking penalty outright, but explicitly suspended from whichever tournament he had earned the most points at masters on the master's level within the last 12 months. So for him, that would be Monte Carlo because he won it. So he wouldn't have been allowed to play it unless he did one of two things, which is, you know, do some promotional activity for the tournament or complete what would be uh, constituted as an on-site withdrawal. The confusion was that he would, that he sort of compared it to a ranking penalty as opposed to a suspension that clearly is not one that is enforced or regularly implemented because we would have seen at some point another player withdraw from a, from a, it's clearly can't be that easy to incur this penalty because if you, if it was, you know, Nadal, Djokovic, then they've all skipped masters then they've never been, you know, banned from competing, you know, at their, at their best masters of the last 12 months. So this, this, it all was quite confusing and, um, you know, sort of, I guess, on brand a little bit for Sitsipas. Although I have to say, you know, again, to, to do the compliment sandwich, you know, to speak to Sitsipas one-on-one, he is very charming. I do get like, to, he is so much more interesting in person than he is to read, because I think when you read it, it's kind of like, what's this? But like to kind of hear him explain things and the fact that he was getting into the Miami mindset and, you know, going to the Windwood Walls, I was like, Oh, you're not so bad. Uh, <laughs> really, like, really, I kind of got it. I got why people are so probably leave his press conferences enamored with him and want to write up these stories about his potential because there is like an he is like the air, you know, he just there's a way in which he conveys his points, which is it's very interesting. And so, um, but not not always clear and concise because I think he could have there could have been a lot more confirmation because it's I guess the reason why the ATP didn't step in was because he wasn't like technically wrong, but he said it in a way that made it made it seem worse than what it really was. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, yeah, it was weird. Uh, that That's the best way to frame it. There was no clarity coming out of the issue, and it doesn't feel like something that's going to get addressed moving forward as well. That'll be a quick blip on the radar. But yeah, I mean, look, it, it's been a fun sunshine swing. Like it does feel like we have some clarity coming out of it, coming out of this first third of the season as we begin to turn the page and let me just tell you right now, DK, you will be back on this show next week to talk about the biggest winners, losers of the first third of the season. We'll do an update on where our teams stand. We'll figure out a way to redraft things as yeah, well. Yeah, we got to redraft because some, yeah, of, we, some of our people are pregnant and or yeah. <laughs> otherwise indefinitely absent. Yeah. You know what we're going to do, DK, before our next podcast? We're going to game plan. I'll send you some ideas. How about that? And we'll figure Ladies out. Ladies and something. gentlemen, am I about to get an outline? Yeah, I, <laughs> don't hold your breath on that. But I'm yes, going to be waiting no. for a Google Doc. Collaboration <laughs> invitation. Very excited. I'll even, I'll even share it with Westoff too, so you can get his email. Um, yeah, no. Um, yeah, it, it's been great, and what's amplified this back end of it, of course, is having you on the grounds, writing about it all on tennis.com. And I know the entire tennis team has been killing it from the start of this Sunshine Swing, killing it all year long. Anything we should be aware of down the home stretch? Any final pieces you want to plug before I let you go? No, I mean, what I will say is we did get so much time and access to the players that has not made it to print yet. And that's something that you can expect over the next couple of weeks and months. But um, yeah, we it was an interesting tournament. It was a 
in some ways a strangely organized tournament, but I think coming out of it, we got so much that it's hard to really complain. But um, yeah, I got some cool stories out of the out of the out of the mix. Did some writing, did some social, did some production for anyone who follows me on Instagram. I was filming some uh, some content with my very own Daniela Hantakova, um, and I'm excited to see some of that come through. To see, you know. I'm finally a triple threat, everybody. <laughs> I'm a writer, <laughs> writer, editor, and I'm, a, I'm finally putting the producer, an editorial producer. So that, that's that's interesting. Um, but yeah, it was a great tournament. I'm really glad to have been back on the road, and hopefully I'll be on the road more often after yeah. this. From your mouth to the Tennis God's ears, we appreciated everything you did. And again, you can find every piece on Tennis.com. You can find them all more immediately by going to at DKTNNS on Twitter. A massive shout-out to DK. A massive shout-out as well to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who has what sort of editing job to do, DK? Oh, he does a f***ing editing job. <laughs> he does, day in, day out, making all of this content possible. Shout-out to him. Shout-out to our dear friends, of course, at Tennis Point as well. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for the fantastic David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point. From all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? And that's the break. <laughs> we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you, as always, my friend. Das Vidania.